Hello, this is Line of Sight. I am Bridget Helms, Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Santa Clara University. And my name is Don Heider. I'm the Executive Director of the Markless Center for Applied Ethics, also at Santa Clara. We're delighted to have with us today, Allison Kopp. Allison is the Chief Marketing Officer and Head of Data Product at UNU, the leading artificial intelligence company serving the controlled environment agriculture industry. Previously, Allison served as CEA of a software company called Artemis, which was acquired by UNU in 2021. Artemis won the highly coveted Disrupt Cup at TechCrunch Disrupt in San Francisco in 2015. Allison was named one of Forbes 2019 30 Under 30, as well as the 2021 Global Women Fresh Women of Impact. She's a sought-after speaker on the future of agriculture, giving keynotes at such conferences as TEDx, Forbes 30 Under 30, Forbes Ag Tech Summit, and the All Tech Ideas Conference. Allison sits on the boards of Santa Clara University's College of Arts and Sciences, the Chioka Center for Entrepreneurship, and Cargill Edge. And she's an entrepreneur in residence at Ireland's National Accelerator NDRC, is an investment partner also at X Factor Venture. So Allison, so happy to have you with us. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start with you talking a little bit about these companies you've been a part of, Artemis and UNU, they've both been primarily remote companies. So what's the challenge of building a culture remotely and how do you overcome that at scale? Yeah, it's interesting. So when I started Artemis about seven and a half years ago now, uh, the the world of remote working wasn't as prevalent, of course, as it is now in this sort of world of post-COVID. And uh, so we were really starting out in new territory for everybody. And we intentionally started the business as a remote first company, uh, really from day one. I remember our, our CTO at the time had worked at a few different remote companies and said, look, a lot of the things that remote companies have to offer are really beneficial, especially when you're thinking about hiring a lot of engineers in a hyper competitive market, which it was then, it still is now, it probably won't change anytime soon. Um, and so you have to think about things that you can do to stand out in the marketplace. And at the time, building a remote company had a lot to offer a lot of different working populations that don't normally get to tap into those benefits. You can have flexible working hours for parents. You can have a higher quality of life because you're living in a place that you want to live in and you can afford to live in because you choose that. Um, you don't have to go to a city. You don't have to go to the, you know, the Bay Area. Uh, it is a really attractive thing uh, to a lot of people but it also brings a lot of challenges, as you mentioned, Don. It's, um, you know, the, the thing that you have to get right in a remote first culture, uh, you have to get communication really, really down uh, early on, right? So simple things like making sure there are documentation, there's documentation on everything about the company, right? But having that in a shared drive that everybody can access, having a really, really good onboarding program for new employees. Um, if you get onboarding wrong early, it makes it really challenging to jump into a remote culture because you don't know who everyone is. You don't know where everybody works. You don't know their job titles. You don't know basic information, right? And now a lot of these things have become more common 
commonplace now in the world of post-COVID because we've had to do it for the last two years, which I can't believe it's already been two years now. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's a new world right, that we live in. And so I think a lot of companies now have these things to offer. Um, but there are still those, those basic things you have to get right. Communication uh, is one. Onboarding, I'd say, is another. Uh, and, and just really focusing on a culture-first company uh, helps with remote working. You know, it's interesting um, because I started at Miller Center in July 2020 and moved across the country to be here and everything was remote. So all of the tools that I had in my toolkit for building culture, for conducting strategy refresh process, all the things that you do when you come in as a new executive had to completely, as many of us did, had to completely rethink and um, only ever really met everyone in person more than a year later. And I, I can totally understand that. I think the culture part is the hardest. So for me, productivity hasn't really been an issue. It's more connectivity and trust building so that you can have, you can build the sort of culture that you want. So can you say a little bit more about that? How do you, how do you build culture? Because it's culture isn't just about communication, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I love what you said about the trust building because that is such a huge piece that gets overlooked when you're building a company is you have to trust each other, right? Especially in early stage companies where everybody's putting everything on the line to move the needle forward continuously, right? And so you have to all have trust and two-way street, right? Like it has to be a two-way street. And it's really, really difficult to do that if you've never met the person on the other side of the phone, right? And so um, I think we do have much better tools now, right? Zoom just works a lot better as we're all on Zoom now. Uh, you know, all of the different video chat tools work really, really well, um, or at least significantly better than they did two years ago, right? Um, having Slack and having Teams, all these types of things make a world of difference for how you get to know each other. Um, but sorry, back to the culture part, because that's what I find actually even more interesting than all of this and in, in communication tools. Uh, culture, I'll say first and foremost, has to be inclusive of lots of things, right? So it's, it is the how we make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. It's how we talk to each other. It's how we want to be looked upon both internally and externally as a company. It's also things like healthcare. And, and as you think about remote benefits, right? Uh, it's a really lonely job when you have to sit in, you know, in your house, in your home office, and you don't get to meet your colleagues. So thinking about mental health and thinking about things that we didn't maybe think about a few years ago as policies and being inclusive of those things. So I think there's, there's sort of the systemic side of this, which is the health benefits, the support, the simple things that companies do have to provide anyway, should provide, uh, and are starting to add to that list of things we provide over time. And then there's the the other piece, right? The more intangibles of culture, right? How do you think about what you want to be as a company? Um, and this is a ton of fun to me. I think it's one of my favorite things of company building in general is thinking about what, what you want to be when you grow up as a company. My advice to entrepreneurs listening is, is start with your core values or your operating principles, um, two slightly different things, right? So your core values, what do you really deeply care about as a group? Um, your operating principles, what, how do you make decisions? How do you, how do you actually do things at the company? Um, so are you, are you a direct communication style? Just kind of continuing the communication theme here, right? Is it, is it direct? Are you, uh, do you encourage that kind of communication style? Do you force 
force feedback up and down your chain? Is that the kind of culture you want to have? Or is it not, right? Is it more standard in your review process? Do you have a formal process of going through performance reviews? Do you have a formal way to get feedback on your performance, you know, which is different than a continuous feedback process? Um, those are all types of things that as leaders you have to think about on a regular basis. They're also going to change. You're going to evolve over time, right? How you think about culture when you're five people is very different than potentially when you think of it at 20 people, which is different at 200 and 2000, right? Every sort of level of scale evolves how you think about culture. Um, one of the things that we've done a really good job at um, at UNU is that we have our set of operating principles and we talk about them on a regular basis, right? We talk about them at our all hands meetings. We give performance reviews based on, on operating principles and core values. We think about it when we choose a client or choose a partner in our ecosystem to work with. And so you go through this sort of rigor of having that as part of your day to day. And it helps really drive everything from who you hire uh, and fire when you do have to do that to how you scale the company to the investors that you choose, right? All of those types of things fall into your core values and your operating principles as a company. What do you think some of the ethical challenges are facing AI in the agriculture space? Yeah, this is a topic we could probably talk about for days. Um, there, there are a ton, right? Um, because at the end of the day, what AI is trying to do is make decisions. And at the back end, who's building it is humans, right? So you're always going to have this sort of ethical question of even if AI can make the same decisions or better decisions than humans, there's still a programmer at the end of the day who sort of started that process of decision making and thinking about the frameworks of how you make the decisions. Um, and so there's a lot <laughs> to think about when it comes to uh, where AI can be used really well and where there can be really interesting ethical, um, I wouldn't say dilemmas, right? But there could be interesting ethical dilemmas, but interesting ethical questions around how we use AI. Um, so our company is an AI company. Uh, you know, we, uh, we use computer vision and camera systems to understand what's going on in your, your greenhouse or vertical farming facility. So we're looking at the plants all the time. And then we use that information to help farmers really understand what's working, what's not, um, how are the plants growing, what are they responding to, how do you think about tweaking things in a way that makes sense uh, for sustainability, for traceability, for economics, for profitability, right? Um, for any of those, those different parameters, but really start steering production in a way that's, that's run by the grower, but led by the intelligence. And that's a different sort of lens because we're not saying, hey, we're coming in to automate everything necessarily and to take the people out of the equation. What we're doing is we're saying we're augmenting the people and using the intelligence that both humans have and machines have to come together to make the best decisions possible. And I think that's one of the things that's really critical as we're in the early, we're still way in the early stages of AI. I think everybody likes to think we're sort of past the the sort of different later stages of development, right past the trial of disillusionment and all these types of things in the hype cycle. But we're not. We're still really early in this in this process. And um, and some technologies are further along, right? Autonomous tractors and farming. People don't give farming enough credit because it's always the least digitalized uh, industry, right? Um, but we've had autonomous tractors. We've had autonomous driving on the field for a long time. Um, we've had 
computer vision, you talk about computer vision and what we're doing while innovative, right? You've had computer vision to some degree doing sorting for plants for a really long time. Um, and you can suss out what, what products are going to get packed or not packed based on grading. Um, so there's sort of been this evolution of technology, but when you combine both human intelligence and machine intelligence, I think you can get something that's really interesting. And again, we're still really in the early stages. So I think there's a lot of research to be done on this. There's a lot of work to be done on this to understand how ethics can play into it, which is why I love the work that the center's doing and, and the school's doing and thinking about these questions early, early on. Earlier, you were talking about setting the culture and thinking about your core values and what you want to be when you grow up. And it turns out that you were very successful in sense of being acquired. But I guess my, one of my questions is, was that your dream? Was, was that your dream to, to be acquired when you started out with Artemis? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's interesting because every entrepreneur, I feel like, has a different lens to this. But at the end of the day, if you're a venture-backed entrepreneur, you are expecting some sort of an exit, right? Whether it's IPO, whether it's selling the company. Um, but the whole goal is to build something big enough and valuable enough that somebody wants it, whether it's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of customers, right, via IPO, um, or if it's something more akin to an acquisition. And so, uh, yes, is the, the shorter answer to that, right, is that, yeah, there is this sort of expectation that you're going to build something valuable enough to do that. Um, and we hope for it, of course, always hope for it. Um, what's interesting in our acquisition is that we chose UNU uh, to, uh, as a partner for this, because of the technology matching that came with our products and the opportunity to have even larger impact than we could in other scenarios. And that was tremendously exciting to me. So that was the sort of dream outcome is thinking about um, our software, which understands the people side of this, right? It's all the manual tasks. It's everything that a farmer is doing on a day-to-day -day basis, but it doesn't live anywhere right now. Um, we take all that information and turn it into digital systems for the first time. And then you add on computer vision and automation and autonomous growing and crop steering, and you pair those things together. And that's when you can actually look at that entire data set across the operation from people to machines and really help make financial impact uh, and really big impact. And so that natural that natural merging of technologies made so much sense. And then the natural merging of the teams and where we were at and our company stages, all of that stuff made so much sense that it was a, a pretty much a no brainer for us to, to think about uh, doing this and then moving forward at a really accelerated pace. Yeah. So this is all pretty new. I'd be interested to hear a little bit more, you know, from a personal perspective, your transition from being a founder to now being a CMO uh, in your post-acquisition life and how that whole merging of the two organizations is working for you personally and what, what would be your recommendations for others? Yeah, it's very interesting, right? So an acquisition is taking something that you've built as a founder and selling it, right? And so it's and it's fun because you've you've actually been selling the company to some degree for the entirety of your company's history. It's just been usually to customers and to investors, and now it's sort of a different thing where uh, you're selling the entirety of the business to somebody else, and that that process is it's similar but slightly different, and and definitely impacts the founder a lot more or founders a lot more. Uh, in a in a very personal way, right? And so, it's been fun. I will say it's been a lot of fun. Adam, the CEO of Unu, and I have uh, gotten to know each other over the past few years. 
because we were we would joke that we've always been sitting on opposite sides of a fence looking over at each other's businesses because we were so close and we are tackling the same types of problems, but we did it in two very different ways, which is why this sort of makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so we've known each other since probably 2012 or 13. Um, 13, I think, is when he, and he started the company officially, and 15 is when I started mine. And so we've just been in this really small industry. And uh, and even when we started the process of, of talking to them as a company, the, the conversations went on for hours and hours and hours where we could just sit and talk about the industry. And that sort of was my first good sign of, you know, it'll be fun to work together. Um, and I think founders, you know, from an advice standpoint, you have to be comfortable in your own personal, like where you're at in your life, in your career and in the company's history and stage to understand that you have to let go of some things. Sometimes you're lucky enough that you get to a place where you don't have to necessarily do that. And sometimes you do have to let go completely, right? And so there's different stages of this. Uh, if we had sold to a big you know, Fortune 500 company, this would be a different conversation because you go from being a founder to a very much an employee. Uh, in in this case, it was it was two startups coming together, one in sort of much further along than where we were. Um, but the the amount of things that you can still have accountability over that's still real, right? And so it's fun for me because it's you take a slight step back, but you actually get to own a lot more than I did as a founder, almost even. Because when you're a founder, you're doing, you know, I always say that your uh, your job is threefold, right? Your job is to make sure you have the right people on the bus, the bus has gas, and the bus has the directions it needs to go. That's your job as a founder. Um, and so you don't get to dig deep into a lot of things. You're not digging deep into every single client relationship. You're not digging deep into every single business development relationship or product or whatever it is that you're really good at as a founder. Um, and now I get to kind of dig way deeper into these things, right? And the projects that you get to work on have meaningful impact on the direction of the company because you get to do that. So that's a, it's a lot of fun. I, I guess I guess one of the questions that people have is it doesn't feel like a demotion somehow. I know a lot of people who have sold their startups to, you know, you were talking about the bigger, you know, really big companies and um, have not had such a happy <laughs> experience as you're describing. Yeah, most founders, I think it was like something like 90% of acquisitions, right? Have the founders leave after a year or something, right? It's, I mean, that, and that's just the case is that most people aren't super happy with the, the feeling, but it actually usually isn't about feeling of demotion, which it is, but it isn't. If you're a founder mentality, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to come into any organization and try and do things. That's just, that's just your personality at your gut, right? Like I walked into the organization and was like, all right, what's going on here and where are roadblocks that you're facing that meaningfully move the needle for the business that I can just go focus on? Can I get 10 of the roadblocks, your biggest company roadblocks for the quarter? What are they? How can I help? Um, and that's a very entrepreneurial mindset. And so the title is irrelevant in that case. You're really just, it's the work that matters. Um, I do think where people get really bogged down, and this happens to probably everyone who's an entrepreneur at heart, is you want to go do it again. Um, and that's a real feeling, right? Like everybody who's an entrepreneur and also masochistic <laughs> to some degree uh, wants to go do it again. You want to have your your hands in the, in the race and you want to go build something again. Uh, and so that feeling is hard when you're at a big corporate company, right? Because you're not moving as quickly as you can. Um, you're not moving 
at the speed you used to move or at the, you know, with the resources you used to have or with the authority you used to have, it starts to then say that pull gets tighter and tighter where you say, you know what, I think now is the time to go jump into something again. It, it can work a little bit different if you're jumping into, if it's more of a merger or you're jumping into an earlier stage or later stage company or something like that, where the pace is still fast, but not always, not for everyone. So you had built a culture in your company and then the company you, you, that acquired you, you work for now, had its culture. How do you integrate mm-hmm. those rather than build a culture? We, we spend a lot of time helping companies thinking about whether they have an ethical culture, for instance, and, and how they can do a better job of building an ethical culture. So how do you, how do you deal with the culture issue? So this is probably one of the absolute hardest things to do is to integrate culture rather than build culture. So building culture is hard, right? Because you're creating something from nothing. And uh, and the problem that I mentioned earlier around your culture today for five people is going to be very different than when you're 50 or 100 people. And that challenge is very real. Integrating two cultures of established companies who have been around for a decade is very difficult to do. Um, so this is this is one of the things that's still ongoing with the acquisition process, right? I think it's an ever-present thing that you have to keep working towards. Otherwise, you don't figure it out together. I won't say a lot more because I don't know what other people's processes were, but a lot. It felt like a lot more than whatever is market standard of culture vetting prior to to doing the acquisition. And what I say by that is, you know, the founder and I you know, the two founders came together, we got to know each other really well. We went through our operating principles, their operating principles, we reviewed them together, right? We spent a long time going bullet by bullet, understanding why somebody made each decision. Um, We went through examples of how it was used, how things are used in day to day, right? Is it, we review things at all hands. Do you review things at all hands? Yes, we review things at all hands. Great. That's a check because it's similar. It's not changing behavior too much for the team, right? Um, You go through interview processes where you interview each other's teams. You get to know the senior leadership on both teams during an acquisition. So you can, you can treat it like a hiring process, right? You can start to evaluate, um, you know, would you want to work at this company? Would you want to hire the person on the other side of the table? Would you, you know, vice versa? So you're kind of splitting the the idea there. And then what you have to do, though, and this what I think is is pretty critical, is you have to acknowledge that you're either doing one of two things. You are folding one culture into the other, and it's going to go away because somebody bought you for a lot of money, and that culture no longer exists because they bought you for what they want as a component of their company. Or it's some sort of this vision of we're actually a new company together and we want to build that together. It's probably going to be one of the two of those, right? It's either we're scrapping everything that you had. Sorry, but come on over, right? That's it. Um, And that's fine, right? That's one way of doing it. Uh, And then the second being we're going to build something unique together as we move forward that is unique to the new thing that we are building here. Um, I think both of those systems actually work fine. Um, it just depends on what your companies want and how you think about this. Um, but I also think it's important to state which one of those paths or or other paths that I'm not even thinking of is the path and commit to one and move forward in a path that works for the company, right? Um, so being really intentional about culture is so, so important. It cannot be an afterthought or things go haywire. Um, I also, for what it's worth, think that the point you said about an ethical culture is very interesting. And I'm very curious what you think ethical cultures look like, um, because that is something that we've thought about a lot is 
do you build ethics into your core values, for example, or should it be inherent in everything you do? Um, so is it a stated cultural core value or is it present in, is it omnipresent, right? Um, and that, those types of things I love thinking about, but, you know, maybe a second podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interested in what you have to say about that, Don. But what, one of the things that, before we get to because I'm really interested in this idea of merging different cultures because it, it, it happens in a lot of different contexts, not only when you have these kind of um, acquisitions, but also um, when you have new leadership come into an existing organization that brings, you know, their culture with them. Yeah. Um, and do you, did you find yourself when you were comparing notes like this? I mean, I think there is a third option, I guess, which it, I guess it's closer to your sec, your option, too. But it's kind of more like... Um, learning from each other and saying, wow, ooh, that's super cool that you do that thing. Yeah. Obviously, you already have to be aligned on a certain level and values and what you're trying to achieve and your vision and all of that. But what I love is constantly improving and learning from the way other people have been doing things. And I agree that this, what we're talking about really is behavior because that's how culture shows up as behavior, right? It's how we treat each other. It's how we work. It's what we do. And um, I think like when you learn about different techniques and things that people do, you can add it onto your mm-hmm. cultures. Like kind of, I guess what I'm trying to say is um, culture is not static, right? It's, it should be always uh, evolving. So I'm just, I'm curious if there are any learnings that you had, any aha moments that you had like that. Sure. Yeah, and I think for what it's worth, that probably it does fall into the second bucket the way that I think about it. The challenge with doing an additive option, which I'm sure people have done before, the challenge that I find with doing it is that you may have conflicting pieces um, and that makes it either broken or near impossible to do in purely additive where you're just adding cultural values from both. But you can do, when I say build something that's kind of new, it's not usually ground up. It's let's pull the best pieces from kind of both learnings and what and not reinvent a wheel necessarily, but create something that is for the new team that moves forward. Um, I think on that front, yeah, of course, like we've had a lot of areas where um, we were doing things slightly different from each other. And we've had to learn how to, to sort of bring the like the best of both worlds into into the world. A really good example is that um, the UNU existing team wasn't fully remote at the time um, and wasn't even majority remote, I don't believe. I want to say that it wasn't fully majority remote. Um, had remote people. Um, in agriculture, you're always going to have sort of a spread out across uh, across the place, you know, wherever you are. Um, but wasn't majority remote, whereas we were like 90% remote. Um, and so we think about things slightly different when you have an in-person culture versus a remote culture. Um, but what we were able to do was pull really great learnings and tools for how to do it well into the culture without necessarily replacing anything culturally, right? So a very good tangible example is we did uh, virtual offsites as a company at Artemis, um, usually twice a year, big ones, and then quarterly for different departments and things. But we did these sort of gatherings of the company where we could go through, and it was less so about strategic planning, which a lot of offsites are focused on, and more so about 
what knowledge is locked away in everybody's heads that you don't get to tap into because we're not physically in an office and how do we share that, right? And so you might be doing something, you know, you might have a product design leader who's going to give a session around how to actually uh, iterate on design with clients before in a design-driven process, right? So that might be some sort of a a presentation or talk. Um, And they all are collaborative. They're all sort of participatory. And that that wasn't a process that you knew had done before. What like, yes, offsites, of course, yes, strategic planning sessions, of course, but a remote offsite wasn't something that we had done as a company. And so one of the first things we did within a few months of integrating the companies was we held a virtual offsite because now uh, the weighted average of the company is like 60% remote um, with new hires as well being remote. Um, so now there is a majority of the company that is remote and we had to think about those things, right? So you can definitely do that where you pull best practices of how we think about things and that way you're not always reinventing a wheel. I think it's also important to understand context though and who the company is and not try and replace. If the mentality is, well, we did it better, no, we did it better, you get a very combative culture. And what you really want in an integration more than anything is a feeling of we. So oh, we did it this way, we did it this way. No, you need the big we and not the we work, we, the we as a company, right? You know, we as a company are moving in this direction and everybody needs to understand what direction that is. And then you can start to pull in the best practices from everybody. Yeah, it's so important to do that well. I mean, I've, I've been in companies that have just not done that very well uh, in the past. And you, you, const- you have this us versus them thing going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And when they say we, they mean... The old we, as opposed to the new we. Right. You know what I mean? That I think that's that's the real danger. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it's also related to sort of growth mindset concept, as opposed to yep. scarcity mindset or fixed mindset of just always thinking. Which is hard, by the way, right? You have to have so much empathy for your team during this process because keep in mind, you asked about how it feels to me personally, right? But there's also a team that has been with us for years building this thing, right? And and the uncertainty that comes, it does not matter how transparent you are as a company. It does not matter. It does not matter at all how much information you share about the process, how early you share it or, or anything. There is uncertainty whenever there's some sort of an exit, right? And it's, you know, what does this mean for me financially? What does this mean for my job? What does this mean for our culture? The company that I really loved working for or hated working for, right? In some cases, um, you know, what does this mean? What's going to get better? What's going to get worse? What's, what does this, what does this mean? Right? What does this mean for me? And I think the thing I've learned most during this process is, is just how much empathy you have to lead with during the process and how much time it takes to, to make people feel comfortable. And at the end of the day, not everybody will, right? Not everybody will feel comfortable and it won't be the right place for everybody uh, always. It just, that's just not the case. And so you have to understand that and go into it trying to help at least educate on context. I always, this is like the thing that I advocate for more than anything I ever advocate for is always lead with context help people get to the understanding and questions that they need to get to and, and the decisions that they need to get to, but give them the context that they need to do that, right? And um, I think that is probably one of the most important things in going through a process like this that is like very tangible that you can take away that I will definitely take away. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid the $10,000 question, which is uh, how do you lead the country with context? That, that's another, that's a, that is a whole other podcast. But it is, it's the same thing. It's the same problem, right? We just don't have the information 
for anyone who's listening who wants resources on this, because there's really differing opinions in the tech world about how transparent is good, right? And how what context is good. Um, the the book No Rules Rules, which I find very fascinating. I don't, it's so different from my thinking about a lot of things, but there's a really good portion where they talk about at Netflix, they review financial models and like cash burn and those types of things at all hands. Um, and they did that as a small company and as a big company, um, they just always did. But one of the things that was I found so interesting is I made the mistake that they made early on where I did the same thing. You know, I reviewed financials and burn at an all hands. And I had engineers coming up to me and were like, you know, you're really stressing us out. Um, like, I don't want to think about the fact that we only have you like we just raised money and we only have 18 months to, to go. And you and at the founder level, you're like, yeah, yeah, we do. Like we have 18 months. Let's go. Right. Let's that's great. We've got an eternity here. Like we're ready to go. Um, and you realize that not everybody has the same amount of knowledge about what financial models mean and how they work and how raising venture capital works and what that looks like and all of those things. And so without really giving a full understanding and course almost on how to understand these things, you're going to stress people out, right? And even with all that, you might still stress people out. So you have to think about weighing what context is important, how to lead with that context. And I just find it fascinating that Netflix which is a big company, still does this, but they also do give training and courses on how to understand financial models so that you can have the context you need to go in and at least be fully educated on what it what it means for the business. And and so, you know, for what it's worth, I think there are a lot of different ways to think about this, but um, but you have to be prepared to give the training and education that's needed for context to even be meaningful. And to me, the danger is, and I, I like transparency as a former journalist and in in working at a university, but um, the danger is, even with context, there are people that get way too stressed out. And then there are people who should be stressed out who it, it, it's like impenetrable. It doesn't get through to them. You want them to realize the financial realities of what's coming. And yet... Um, they seem impervious. So I think that's the balance as a leader is how do you protect the sort of sensitive people who really shouldn't get that upset about it, who are doing a great job doing exactly what they should, but also get the people who (laughs) seem to care sometimes to understand that, um, you know, this is a business and we have to move forward. And I I do think you're right that people will always react the way they react, but they have the they should have the freedom to do that, right? Um, I think that as long as you have the information, then it's up to the person to do their job to react in a way that's educated, right? Um, so it's on the leader's job to educate. It's on the employee's job, of course, to, to understand and react. Um, and I find that systems, they break all the time because they don't have that piece working. Um, but also there's another component, which is making sure that incentives are aligned is a huge component, at least, at least from my small small world lens, right? Which is in venture back tech startups. Um, and that, that world is, you know, a, a really good tangible example of this is we had, um, we, we, we pretty transparent organization in general. And we did in the past, uh, these surveys on a pretty regular basis to see how people were feeling about things like benefits, right? Just I, like, you know, big co's do their annual planning process around benefits. We just did it regularly just to see what people liked and didn't like. And and uh, it, it didn't have to be big things like healthcare. It could be little things like, do you like the vacation policy, right? Whatever it was. Um, and one of the most interesting moments as a founder that I had around employee 
transparency that I learned about and in aligning incentives was we had more than one person uh, respond to that survey and say, we'd really like to have some profit sharing system. And we're like, huh, this is an early stage tech company. Like we don't have profits first, right? And you should know that if you're attending all hands, but like maybe you don't, maybe the information is being presented wrong, right? So there's that, but there's also like, that is what equity is. And if you don't understand the value of the equity that you've been given in this company, we've got a bigger problem because that is why that is why you're here. Um, and that is a big piece of, I mean, if you're going, everybody knows, right, that tech startups early stage, especially, you're probably not getting the same pay that you're getting at Google. You're not getting the same pay that you'd get at, you know, any of the FANG companies or any of the big tech companies or even later stage companies. But you do get, hopefully, not every company, right, but hopefully in sacrifice of that, you're getting a big chunk of equity in some way, shape or form. And that is potentially really valuable, but you need to create the value in that equity yourself. And if we're not understanding that, then the burnout that comes or the stress out that comes or any of those things, that is very real. So we had to shift gears for a while and have um, our attorney and then also um, a few founders uh, and a few startup employees came in and did sort of presentations to our team about what equity actually means, how it works, how you exercise, how you think about these things. Because I realized that people just, not everybody knew, um, had this assumption that everybody joined an early stage company to get the equity because it's, it's great. Right. And, uh, and of course it doesn't always turn out to things and there's whole challenges in the equity system. And that's probably for another podcast as well. But, um, in general, philosophically, that should be an, an interesting motivator and just realized it wasn't right. And so there was a place where, there wasn't enough baseline context. We didn't provide enough context. The incentives weren't aligned and it creates a stress out, right? And so there's there's different layers to the puzzle of how you are transparent, how you share information, how you work together, how you align incentives to get the engine really cranking in a, in a full capacity kind of way. What I want us to make sure we get to is this idea of uh, female founders, which has been, you know, the, this area, the, the Valley has an abysmal record in uh, helping, supporting, giving any opportunities to uh, women who have amazing, often great, fantastic ideas, uh, but uh, are unheard. And so you, I know you're part of this X Factor Ventures. Talk a little bit about it, uh, how, what the important work you're doing there is, and what advice you have. For what it's worth, it's not just women, right? Um, black founders, uh, LGBTQ founders, right? Any Anyone who's not in the standard mold of Silicon Valley, you know, an Ivy League uh, white man uh, is probably at a disadvantage in the world of venture capital. Um, and so it's a systemic problem we have to fix. And, and there are a lot of efforts right now, at least, going on to address this, which uh, which is great. It's good to see a lot of momentum in this area. Um the the work that I'm doing at X Factor Ventures. So X Factor Ventures is a is a venture capital fund. Uh, invest in early stage female founded companies. Uh, so we invest one hundred and fifty thousand dollars into pre seed and seed stage companies. Uh, acts very very similarly to any other standard venture capital fund, uh, with probably two major exceptions. One is that we only invest in female founded businesses, but two is that all of the partners are also full time founders or some recently exited founders, whatever it may be. Um, and so there's a lot of partners at the fund rather than maybe two for the size fund that, that it is um, and stage fund that it is. Um, and that helps uh, because one, founders don't 
have enough time to really be full-time investors as well. But also the thesis is that you do see a lot of deal flow as a founder. And so, you know, there's a lot of times where you're mentoring at an accelerator, for example, and then you're like, oh, I really wish I could invest in this business. But of course I'm a founder, so I don't have any money. And so I can't do that. Um, but boy, if I had money, right? And so again, until you like exit and, and do these things, uh, the chances of you building that angel portfolio is probably pretty low. But the chances of you seeing maybe higher quality deal flow is is high, right? And so that's the sort of thesis behind this fund is let's invest it. Let's have founders really try and understand other founders and, and bring their deal flow, their unique deal flow to the table uh, and invest specifically with that that goal. Um, and it's been incredible. We I've invested, I think, in seven companies, maybe seven or eight. Um, everything from quantum computing to... Uh, hormone safe skincare products um, to uh, online gaming and and like everything in between. So it's a lot of fun as a founder. And, and by the way, like sh- shameless plug, if any female founders are listening, one, I'll happily take your pitch, but also two, if you're a later stage female founder and you're interested in the investing side, we're also adding new partners right now for our third fund. So um, you can always reach out to me uh, pretty much anywhere online and I'll get back to you. Um, but the really cool thing about it is as a founder, you get to really broaden your horizon in spaces you never had access to before. So I am a B2B founder in enterprise SaaS, and I'm investing in consumer products that really I know nothing about <laughs> other than the, the diligence and, and doing the sort of work of, of digging in as much as I can and then getting the sort of benefit of having consumer founders on our team who help you understand that. But that then helps me understand, well, hey, what's that marketing idea that so-and-so is doing in a different industry or in a different, you know, in B2C that we could maybe borrow and apply to the B2B industry? And how do we think about that, right? Or how do we think about uh, building a product team in a slightly different way? Because I never thought about it this way. Or, you know, so-and-so is thinking about culture in a different way than I'm thinking about it. Wow, this is really interesting. And those types of things, the more you can get exposure to that as a founder, the better off you're going to be always. um, Because otherwise you get stuck in, these sort of silos and vacuums of, of information and, and that's dangerous. So it's, it's super fun. It's a lot of fun. And we've, we've invested in, I don't even know what the full number is, but um, maybe 30 or 40 companies or so as X Factor. And they're all doing incredible. I'm so proud. It's like a, a proud mama bear <laughs> over the, the companies, but they're, they're doing so, so, so well. And the stat that I always love talking about, by the way, is that, um, this isn't a charity. I think people often are like, oh, that's a nice little thing you're doing over there. Um, but it's not. It's a, This is a business, right? And and so, um, you know, we like thinking about things like returns, um, but female founders tend to outperform male founders. So there's a real business case uh, in, in doing this. And it's an untapped market, frankly, for investors because, you know, people aren't getting the funding that they they should get um, access to. I think if I can advocate for anything, it's that we need more of these funds, but we need bigger funds too. And um, we need people writing bigger and bigger and bigger checks into into female founders. It can't just be seed and pre-seed. So I think I get really excited when I start seeing some of the larger funds that are also shaping up. This has been Line of Sight with Allison Kopp, the UNU. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Bridget Helms, Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Santa Clara University. And I'm Don Heider, Executive Director of the Markle Center for Applied Ethics, also at Santa Clara. Allison, it's been nothing but a joy talking to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you.